You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nebula. Hey folks, this is Lacey Hannon. Welcome to Settle the Stars. In 2009, fans of hard science fiction were treated to the perfect antidote to all the fantastical Star Wars and Transformers-style blockbusters that had come to dominate modern sci-fi at the cinemas. An introspective and innovative indie hit by the name of Moon that starred Sam Rockwell, Sam Rockwell, and Sam Rockwell. Yes, you heard that right. And if you haven't seen Moon yet, you might want to get on that because we're about to delve into some major spoiler territory. In both style and tone, Moon calls back to the more realistic and more dystopian science fiction of the 70s and early 80s. Films like Silent Running, Outland, Alien, and Blade Runner. Those were films that featured run-down and lived-in future worlds where the technology may have been more advanced, but where society had taken a turn for the worse, leaving the individual more alone than ever in the face of existential dread. These were the movies that Duncan Jones watched growing up and the kind of sci-fi he hoped cinema would return to, the kind where ideas took precedence over explosions. It may have taken Jones a while to figure out that what he really wanted to do was to direct sci-fi of his own. But visiting the film sets of his dad, rock icon David Bowie, must have surely helped steer him in the right direction. Jones was a fan of the actor Sam Rockwell and originally wanted him to star in a Blade Runner-inspired project of his called Mute, which he would eventually make for Netflix about 10 years later with Rockwell appearing in a Moon-related cameo. Rockwell initially passed on Mute since he and Jones had differing ideas on which character he should play, but the two bonded over their love of science fiction and Rockwell told Jones to let him know if he wrote anything else in the genre. Jones immediately set to work with his writing partner, Nathan Parker, on a new sci-fi script that was tailored especially for Rockwell and that would give the actor a performance challenge unlike any he had encountered before or since. The story they came up with finds a man named Sam Bell grinding through a three-year stint on a lunar base, like many a blue-collar protagonist found in 70s sci-fi, working for a giant corporation that's more interested in its bottom line than in the welfare of its quite literally disposable workforce. A crew of one, Sam wants nothing more by the end of his three years on the moon than to return home to his wife and baby girl. But when an accident puts him in the infirmary and he wakes up to find himself face to face with, well, himself, or rather another copy of himself, Sam's whole world is blown open and his hopes of ever returning home begin to diminish. The challenge of playing a pair of clones was unlike anything Rockwell had prepared for before, and the setup naturally called for a more technically involved filming process. To differentiate the two Sams, Rockwell and Jones looked at how David Cronenberg had portrayed Jeremy Irons' twin brothers in Dead Ringers 
and how Spike Jones had handled Nicolas Cage's two Charlie Kaufmans in adaptation. The interplay between the two Sams and Moon would be more involved than either of those examples, but studying them helped Rockwell and Jones come up with all the differences in personality and appearance that would distinguish Sam 1 from Sam 2, as they came to be known on set. On playing the two Sams, Rockwell spoke about contrasting energies and how they went for an alpha-beta dynamic, mentioning that one was a bit Robinson Crusoe, a bit batty, and the other full of testosterone. Sam 1, who is nearing the end of his three years of lunar isolation, struggles from a limp and a persistent cough as his body begins to break down on him. His emotional exhaustion and naive optimism make him open to bonding with his newly awakened replacement, and reluctant to accept the fact that he was never intended to return to Earth, where the original Sam lives with the family he dreams of. By contrast, Sam too, fresh from cold storage, is physically healthy, extremely weirded out, and determined to get to the bottom of what the company is up to. The two of them argue but eventually bond and even play a fascinating game of ping pong together in a single, unbroken shot. Rockwell does such a good job playing opposite himself and becoming the two very different personalities the script calls for, you never once stop to think about the movie magic that made it possible. While Jones mainly came up with the story as a way he could work with Rockwell on his first film, he was also using the story to explore how people respond to isolation and cope with being distanced from loved ones. At the time, Jones was in a long-distance relationship with someone in Korea and was feeling the burden of that distance, hence the name of the lunar base, Sarang, which is the Korean word for love. In the film, it's particularly interesting to see how three years in isolation have shaped the person Sam 1 becomes by contrast with his same self three years younger in Sam 2. The futuristic enterprise that leads the film's big evil corporation to lock all of these Sam clones into a never-ending chain of servitude on the moon is one that had been of great interest to Jones for some time. The possibility of mining helium-3 from the lunar surface to provide the world a newer, better form of energy. He first read about the concept in former Apollo 17 astronaut Harrison Schmidt's book, Return to the Moon, Exploration, Enterprise, and Energy in the Human Settlement of Space. While the isotope helium-3 is pretty scarce on Earth, it's found in abundance on the moon. Over billions of years, unimpeded by an atmospheric shield like that of the Earth's, solar winds have blasted the moon's surface, rendering it potentially rich with helium-3. According to Gerald Kolkinski of the University of Wisconsin's Fusion Technology Institute, the moon might hold as much as a million metric tons of helium-3 that we could harvest. To put its true value into perspective, Kolkinski says that just 40 metric tons of helium-3 could power the entire United States for a year. That's a lot of energy just sitting unused in the crust of our only satellite. What's more, helium-3 isn't radioactive and would make for a far cleaner energy source than nuclear power. In 2008, the year Moon was made, helium-3 was estimated to be worth 4 billion a ton when comparing its energy output to that of oil. So you can see why the resource would pique the interest of a greedy megacorporation or two. For now, mining helium-3 is still firmly in the realm of science fiction. We neither have a way to fund a harvesting operation on the moon, nor the answer to the fusion process that's needed to convert helium-3 for use as energy. In both cases, we are years, likely even decades, away. 
but those are obviously hurdles that have been cleared by Lunar Industries in Jones's film. And the need to save on costs certainly explains the company's approach of storing an endless supply of human staff on its moon base. While Jones asserts that the philosophical side of Moon was of greater importance to him than the scientific accuracy, he nevertheless put a good amount of thought in the mechanics of how everything in his film's world would work. There was something Sid Mead used to do, Jones said in reference to the legendary concept artist who worked on Blade Runner, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and 2010 The Year We Make Contact, which was that everything that was in the film even if you don't ever see it in any particular detail, the designer needs to know how it works in that world. And we tried to do the same. We tried to make sure that all the vehicles and all the equipment do actually serve their purpose within the world of the film. According to Moon's concept designer, Gavin Rothery, he and Jones spent hours down at the pub discussing just how the Helium-3 harvesters would function. The bulky machines roam the lunar landscape by themselves, pulling up the first few inches of soil, what's known as the regolith, and heating it to nearly 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit in order to release the helium-3 gas from the sediment. The precious isotope is then filtered into super-cold and pressurized containers aboard the harvester, to be later collected by Sam mid-transit, and the machine goes on ejecting the processed regolith in its wake. Squarespace is the website building and hosting company you need. They help even the smallest businesses get noticed. Our company, Edgeworks Entertainment, isn't just about making mobile games. We have a team that makes all sorts of online content. Squarespace makes it a breeze to showcase all the videos we create by already implementing video blocks from YouTube, Vimeo, or Animoto. And because we have a team of people who need access to our site, Squarespace allows us to give multiple people permissions to manage the website. They make it easy to make it a group effort. Oh. I've got to mention how easy it is to use Squarespace blogging tools. They have this configurable sharing button that allows our viewers to share our content from so many sites. Squarespace helps make our internet footprint a little bit bigger. So get noticed today thanks to Squarespace. Head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com STS and you will save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. One of the coolest shots in the film that doesn't involve Sam Rockwell playing ping-pong with himself reveals the long, dark, rectangular streaks the harvesters have etched into the moon's surface. Jones and Rothery were intrigued by the idea that even on a place as desolate as the moon, a company could leave environmental damage. During a post-screening Q&A with NASA scientists at Space Center Houston, Jones went into further detail on what he saw as a potential side effect of Lunar Industries Helium-3 harvesting, not just for the appearance of the moon's landscape, but for wildlife on Earth. He considered whether you could actually change the moon's reflectivity by superheating mass portions of the surface, and as a result negatively impact any range of wildlife on Earth that depend on the moon's visibility. Because of this, he decided the company would have to set up their base and do their harvesting on the far side of the moon, the side that never faces the Earth. The fact that the evil corporation in Jones's future even bothers to think of the environment may be enough to classify his film as optimistic science fiction. When it came to portraying the landscape of the moon itself and how the characters interact with it, Jones settled on a compromise between scientific accuracy and artistic liberty. 
For the appearance of the landscape, he and Rothery drew heavily from Michael Light's book, Full Moon, which contains more than 32,000 photographs of the moon's surface from the Apollo missions. Virtually all of the landscape shots in the film were model miniatures that were extended by digital matte paintings. Early on in the process, Rothery grew intrigued by what's known as the termination line, the clearly defined point where light gives way to darkness on the moon's surface. He realized that by adding in large patches of darkness, he could not only make the landscape appear more interesting, but also save himself a lot of time when it came to the digital matte painting. Jones initially considered a more wholly realistic approach in terms of making the sky perfectly black and allowing no sounds to be heard on the lunar surface. But with the limited budget they had, they realized it would just look like someone pulling a toy rover across a moon playset on a string, which is actually literally what they were doing at times. So to help immerse the audience more in the story, Sam's sky is just as starry as that of the Earth's, and the harvesters crunch noisily over the regolith. Jones also made the decision to disregard the one-sixth Earth gravity experienced on the moon when it came to Sam's movements. Realizing it's sometimes more important to get the viewers to buy into the drama of the story than to be absolutely perfect in your realism. For the purists and the space fanatics, Jones did include one brief shot towards the end of the film where Sam can be seen bounding over the lunar surface in one-sixth gravity. Perhaps this was to suggest, however briefly, how we should be interpreting Sam's movements throughout, in spite of the constraints the filmmakers were up against. On the DVD commentary, producer Stuart Finnegan suggests the lunar base might have its own gravity generator hidden away somewhere. Though it's worth noting, Rothery dislikes when sci-fi movies genie blink away inaccuracies with the explanation of some hidden contraption and admits they just didn't really deal with the gravity issue. No matter how much of a stickler you might be for accuracy, Rothery said, you'll find yourself making these sorts of compromises in film, and it's a relief when the audience is okay with it. Jones didn't completely throw all moon physics out the window, however. He insisted the regolith ejected by the harvesters move in perfectly smooth arcs to indicate that there was no atmosphere, and therefore no wind that might interfere with the outflow of debris. When it came to how the vehicles and the lunar base itself were designed, the crew strove to make everything as authentic as they could. Rothery explained his approach as follows. I tried to make my vehicle and hardware designs look authentic by doing a sort of hypothetical engineering with the design, where I actually designed the vehicle from a practical standpoint and placed the engine, fuel source, suspension, cockpit, etc. inside the vehicle and let that lead the design. Outside of his job as a visual effects artist, Rothery is something of an aviation buff, and he filled the cab of Sam's rover with indie budget-friendly junkyard aircraft parts, including a gyroscope from a Vulcan bomber and bomb-aiming equipment from a Royal Navy vampire. He figured an aerospace company would be responsible for building Lunar Industries rovers, so he leaned into that when it came to their design. In addition to Rothery, for whom working on a hard sci-fi picture must have been akin to being a kid given the run of a candy store, Jones managed to recruit visual effects artist Bill Pearson, who had been model maker on both Ridley Scott's Alien and Peter Himes' Outland. Pearson's involvement certainly brought an old-school authenticity to the grittier, 70s-inspired look Jones wanted to return to in Moon. 
and the emphasis on practical effects and visuals helped the film stand out among the CGI-swamped competition. Incidentally, Moon was shot at Shepperton Studios where the original Alien was filmed, as well as the Moon monolith scene in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Because of the US writers' strike, several productions had been bumped back from their schedules, and the Moon crew had the luxury of completely building out the set of the lunar base so they could treat it like a real location. They designed some of the walls to be flyaway, meaning they could be removed to achieve certain camera angles that would otherwise be difficult. But because of the tight shooting schedule, they actually mostly left the set as it was and made do with the space they had. Of course, this approach resulted in a very claustrophobic feeling set, and Rockwell was reportedly relieved whenever he could escape its confines for a break. But the cramped camera angles do help play up our sense of Sam's cabin fever in the film. As for power, Rothery figured the base would run on its own helium-3 powered reactor, one the size of a dustbin in his estimation, and that a portion of each load Sam returned to Earth would go towards the base's reactor so they could have a report of the purity of the sample before it arrived. The base's own reactor is one of many behind-the-scenes details that doesn't show up anywhere in the film but it demonstrates just how much thought went into building out the world of Moon and ensuring that everything at the design level would hold up to scrutiny. In an interesting turn of events, one member of the NASA audience Jones screened the film for drew attention to the fact that the build was made of concrete and mentioned that she was currently working on something she called Mooncrete, a blend of the lunar regolith with water from the Moon's polar caps that could be used in building structures on the Moon one day. While science and science fiction certainly can and have influenced each other in the past, sometimes they develop concurrently with and independently of one another. Of course, Moon requires even bigger leaps of the imagination than what we've covered today, including the very unlikely technology that would be needed to mass-produce and store in hibernation thousands of human clones, all advanced to the same age and all with the same uploaded memories. But that's where Jones's vision becomes less about scientific accuracy and more about his desire to explore certain philosophical questions in a way that will really grab audiences. For all the artistic liberties and budgetary restraints that shaped Moon into its final product, it's pretty remarkable that Jones was able to shoot a story that looks to general audiences like it might really have taken place on the Moon, and that he did it in just 33 days with a $5 million budget a mere fraction of most other films, mainstream or indie. When it comes to hard sci-fi, Moon may not be the most scientifically accurate film there is, but it nevertheless does just what you expect good sci-fi to do, ask interesting questions about where we are and where we are headed. In a recent retrospective, Jones remarked, I don't think Moon was negative about technology, but it wasn't particularly positive either. Right now, I'm desperately hungry for more optimistic sci-fi because we bloody well need it. How does mankind get itself out of this predicament? Can we see a future we can get excited about? Moon was 10 years ago, and it's crazy how much the world has changed. If there's anything looking back on older science fiction films can teach us, it's that the future will never cease to surprise us. Happy terraforming. Be sure to leave a review and tell your friends about Settle the Stars. Every review really helps for an indie show like ours. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't already.
Settle the Stars is available on pretty much every podcasting platform, and we're also mirroring our episodes on YouTube at youtube.com slash edgeworksentertainment. And be sure to ring that bell so you know when there's a new episode. We also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash edgeworksentertainment. The support of listeners like you is what makes this show possible, and I am so grateful to the people who have already joined. Edgeworks Nebula Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.